Today's Structure Show is brought to you by Momentum SI, experts in cloud computing and DevOps. Momentum provides consulting for Amazon Web Services, OpenStack, and vCloud, as well as leading DevOps solutions like Puppet, Docker, and OpenShift. For cloud and DevOps consulting services, visit www.momentumsi.com. Thanks for supporting the show. So hey everybody, it's Barb Darrow. I'm here with Derek Harris. Hey Derek. Hey Barb. And we have some big data, big guys later for our for our guests, but we'll we'll keep you in suspense. Actually, not even big data. <laughs> deep uh, learning. Deep learning. Uh, so, so it's we'll even keep more you, exciting. It's even more exciting. So anyway, but let's first talk a little bit about what's going on with Pivot. Our friends at Pivotal. Hold on, you guys. You'll bear with me as I move my microphone. <laughs> yes. Professional quality. <laughs> yes, our friends at Pivotal. Um, so, so, yeah, the the news leaked. And I wouldn't say leaked, but uh, well, there was a little a little scoop this week from our friends at VentureBeat. Uh-huh. So, you know, the, initially that reported that Pivotal was going to kill or essentially get rid of its big data business or its Hadoop business and open source a bunch of various, maybe open source some parts of it. Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of building on on stuff that had been reported in November that I think think it was by CRN who reported in November that the company had laid off. Oh yeah, about 60 people I think. Yeah, yeah, laid off like 60 people Mm -hmm. and um, mostly in its big data group, right? So So the Cloud Foundry guys are sitting pretty, I guess, comparatively speaking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, relatively speaking. <laughs> so, so anyhow, so so that was kind of interesting, and I I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been following it too closely, frankly. So when I when I heard that, I perked uh, right up. Yeah, I was like, ooh, that's that's interesting, especially because, you know, I remember a couple of years ago when Scott Yara, the one of the co-founders of Greenplum, and then like you know the one of the you know, Pivotal, he then right. then at EMC he was still running Greenplum, and then he right. went, went along over to Pivotal. Anyhow, you know, he was talking about. When 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 you, when it was still EMC Greenplum, they announced this Hadoop distribution. They were like, "This is going to be the biggest and best thing. We have more that. money and more engineers." <laughs> and like, and you know, as it turns out, so then I so 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 anyway, I read the story in Venture Beat, and I went, and, you know, the self sausage just made right, yeah. And then I went and you know started Actually asked around someone. With some of my, yeah, it was through some of my sources, and you know, it, it, it comes, you know, it's the this the fact of the matter is that it sounds like you know it's going to be Pivotal is definitely going to be open sourcing. It's Hadoop technology and probably the other stuff, and it's going to be, you know, handing it over to some degree to Hortonworks, mm-hmm. which has pretty much been confirmed at this point, right? So mm-hmm. that's going to happen, mm-hmm. and we're going to see how, you know, and they did in fact get rid of a lot of people, a lot of or the, and a lot of people left, right? Whether it was related to that or not, I don't know. Right. But if you remember Hugh Williams, who was oh there, yeah, like, he was great. Yeah, well, he was on the podcast yeah. last year. Well, he left after about a year, and yeah. he was like, you know, the. He was like the data lake guy, the Hadoop guy, the R and D guy. So it's not a good sign. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So that so that happened, Adam. So yeah, now it looks like Hortonworks is going to be taking over some of the management and maintenance of the the pivotal Hadoop code, at least. And IBM was mentioned as well. So we'll see. Oh my god! <laughs> exactly what happens here. But it goes to show. I mean, Hadoop. The people weren't ready. Not say ready, but like, you know, like Hadoop and this whole big data movement. Right, it's it's, right. it's about open source. Right, <laughs> few and far between are I, I think are the proprietary things. Right, that have or you know probably will excel. In this and area and, and Greenplum, I mean, I think I think we were talking about this earlier. Greenplum, which is was this the independent company that I think was it EMC that bought Greenplum? Yeah, uh, 
that technology is not the late, you know cutting edge anymore, right? Not not particularly, no, yeah. not that I'm aware of. I mean, and it was, you know, they were kind of like, oh, we're going to incorporate all these Green Plum sequel stuff into and and columnar stuff into Hadoop, and which was which was fine, like you mm-hmm. know, it was a great idea, but. You know, I think so many people have just decided, well, we'll use Cloudera Impala or we'll use, you know, this new Hive, um, you know, new faster Hive to do SQL stuff on Hadoop. So, yeah, the proprietary thing just ain't man, happening. It just doesn't seem like it's <laughs> happening. I mean, it's not the first company, mind you, in this space. No. Yeah, um, Continuity, if anyone remembers oh, Continuity. I remember them. Now, Cask. And actually, on, on they Wednesday, used to, that guy used to speak at Structure all the time, didn't he? Oh, Todd Papanai. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. He was the first CEO. He's actually the CTO at Splunk now. Ah, okay. And the CEO is this guy, Jonathan Gray. But I'm actually, a, a, so so Continuity is now Cask mm-hmm. and completely open source. Mm-hmm. And actually another former structure speaker, Boyd Davis from Intel, is like the COO I think it's at a Cask C, now. I think this is a sea change since when I started. I mean, I do think there's just a complete... Um, default position to go to open source now whenever you can if you have any resources at your disposal i think so i mean you see i mean you, you see it with all the big guys mm-hmm. you see i mean at, at structured data to get a plug in there kind of sneakishly mm-hmm. today the you know so don duet the head of innovation or co-head of innovation at, at goldman, goldman sachs, sachs is going to yeah. be there and they're all about open source at this right, point right right i think i heard him say a couple of years ago like if we're doing something new, we're looking to open source first. <laughs> right. Well, they were like, Goldman Sachs, it was interesting because they were part of the whole open, uh, what was the hardware thing called? Um, yeah, well, still. I, I can't even called. remember what it's called. <laughs> In fact, <there's, laughs> the Facebook thing, you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, the Open Compute Project. Yeah. I mean, Goldman Sachs was like, I was like, that was the one name that stood out from all those companies. You, you know, it's like, whoa. Um, anyway. Yeah, Sonia, open source wins again. Yay. <laughs> and there was, a, there was some other news. Um, I don't know, kind of related um, about mortar data and, well, not so related, but mortar data and uh, data dog. I love yeah. those names. Is it now data dog, mortar data dog? Or... <laughs> no, no, it's now data dog. <laughs> Just data dog. <laughs> yeah, so, so mortar data, which we've been covering for a couple of years now. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really like the guys there when, when I've spoken with them. Mm-hmm. And they were doing kind of a Hadoop as a service sort of thing and then they kind of moved into like the broader big data pipeline space but kind of simplifying building them mm-hmm. and then you know that you would write some python code some pig code or whatever and kind of it would you know spin up the stuff and run run your job on amazon web services it was kind of the, the the general business model they had an open source part of it but anyhow datadog bought the company and that's closing it down and i guess the team and the tech are gonna you know for the time being at least be working inside datadog Right. Like, so in Datadog, if you're unfamiliar, actually, Barb, you just wrote it with Yeah, Datadog. they got some funding recently. Um, it's it's like a cloud monitoring. Right. Right. Startup. Right. So I think they're in New York, aren't they? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So it's a New York on New York acquisition. But yeah, the I mean, so just as you know, the the mortar team and the mortar tech will be absorbed into Datadog and start, you know, trying to help them build right. more ways to analyze. Right. Cloud cloud infrastructure data, I guess, right. and. And yeah, so I mean that was kind of you know probably bittersweet, but I mean Mortar had raised I think just just over three million dollars in the yeah. 2012. I mean that's not it's not a huge amount of money. No, and in this space, I mean my God, even it, it's kind of weird. Like even if you're like it seems like a fine project mm-hmm. and targeting you know this kind of you know this developer and data scientist type of user and whatnot, but then like. It just seems like you need so much. I don't know what it is to get the traction among users, right. and you have to have the business model. Like, because if you come at it with this kind of, 
I don't, it seems almost like if you come at it with us, well, we'll just charge you for the Amazon instances, and if you want to pay us for support, yeah. So be it. I might be bastardizing the the more right. business. I'm not sure. I think it was very similar to that. Right. I mean, it sounds great if you got people who are willing to do it, and enough of them. But like these other companies that are doing it, um, I think the Cubals of the world and the Ulta Scales, and you know, there's a lot of now kind of Hadoop cloud services out right. there, and Google has Dataflow and right. Amazon has. What Kinesis and all these other things, and by the way, Elastic MapReduce and what Microsoft might or might not have Cosmo, Cosmos right. coming out. Like they're charging a premium, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and like, you know, I guess if you're like gonna make a bet, do you make a bet with a company that you you know you don't know is gonna be around? I mean, you know, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's that's kind of yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like there are these startups that are doing it that have a bunch of money and kind of look legit, and then. You know, who come out as a fast follower, as it were, right? Right, right. And then, and then, then the other thing is, yeah, I mean, Google, Amazon, Microsoft have their own services. I might just want to do that. Right, right. Like, <laughs> so it's it's tough. I mean, I, I always hate writing. You know, companies like you want to be like, oh, this company got bought, but unless it's for you know, for a significant cash. And... Yeah, it's kind of like unless the terms are disclosed or there are numbers. Yeah, it's, I, it's usually an aqua hire or whatever. And um, yeah, then you kind of feel bad. So and and just in straight cloud news, I'm trying to think if there was anything huge this week. Oh, actually, this is a little bit interesting in terms of business. Microsoft, uh, which is you know trying to make Azure kind of a fallback or a you know. At least in the conversation among startups, uh, as cloud of choice, is offering Y Combinator startups five half a million dollars in free cloud credits, which is you know even though it's free, I mean that's a lot. <laughs> and I was talking, you know, I think Amazon's you know standard package is I think uh, fifteen uh, one to fifteen thousand dollars in credits. And Google has something like a hundred thousand, and IBM has one hundred twenty-five thousand. So Microsoft comes in like Sasquatch, five hundred thousand. So I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the Valley, and I said, "Do you think this is going to like cause a stampede of Y Combinators to Azure?" And he said, "No." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "I was like, why not?" And he said, "Well, it's just too different." He said, "All the APIs are different. All the naming can people are used to Amazon the way it does things." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay." Anyway, so sorry, Microsoft. That's one man's yeah, opinion. <laughs> Isn't that kind of the it's kind I mean, of the thing. story of it, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, I, was that you you who wrote something recently? I think over the weekend, maybe where quoting someone, it was kind of like, yeah, Microsoft gets some enterprise deals that Amazon can't get, mm -hmm. but you know, Amazon gets the startup deals. Yeah, <laughs> and that's and you Microsoft. know, we we're just it's the same story we we're just talking about. Customer acquisition is really hard for companies, even for Microsoft, because it's facing an entrenched competitor in this in this instance. Um, so anyway, customer acquisition just like within the Hadoop world is tough. <laughs> that's wrapping it together, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. Okay. Do you want to so. do you want to introduce our guests? Certainly. So one more thing. I just want to put a one more thing oh, okay. that was on the site this week in case you missed it. It's like a Steve Jobs moment, right? Is that, yeah, yeah. But this is the big reveal, the thing you've been waiting for. Uh, Gigom is announcing Ta -da! The, Giga, the Gigaphone. <laughs> it's a smartphone with a, with a Gigom homepage. Awesome. So you turn it on and your default is just news coming at you. <laughs> it's just like Facebook Home. But this, oh one, this one you'll like, trust me. No, it's <laughs> awesome. I was just going to point out that. How about a Gigom watch? Oh, yeah, that, I guess. We're kind there of behind the times. Yeah. The, the Giga watch. Anyway. But, yeah, DARPA. I just wrote a little thing this week based on a 60-minute segment on DARPA and its Memex 
like essentially search index for the deep web. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of fascinating. Like, was this, this a Steve? That, was this who was the correspondent? I can't watch sixty minutes anymore. It drives me crazy. I forget the names. Okay. Leslie Stahl. And okay, they're always Mar- so like overly impressed with everything. But go ahead. Sorry, this was pretty impressive. <laughs> okay, though. all right. So anyhow, in this case, so, so, so Memex, yeah, it was this big, this big effort by DARPA to, to in, you know, use to index the deep web essentially in the dark web so that. You know, they could search for it. They're pretty much targeting human trafficking and sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. And like the idea is, you know, these are tied to other behaviors that, that might be, you know, indicative of or these people might be more inclined to engage in, you know, national security. So they're looking at people or are they looking at transport? They're looking at activity. Ah, okay. Essentially and people. So it's uh-huh. pretty fascinating. Like they're tracking activity across all these, you know. Uh, online classifieds and on deep web and dark web spaces and stuff like that, right? And then they're mm-hmm. kind of, you know, building, you know, a graph, I guess, of who's connected to what and what phone numbers and what identities. I mean, everything, kind of like what you hear about the NSA doing, cool. essentially, right? Yeah. Like building this big graph. And I think, although, although I think most people hear about it, in, you know, in, in this case, and you go, well, that I'm not offended by at all. Right. <laughs> Except, <laughs> because, how do we know that's what they're really doing? But anyway. Well, NSA has its yeah. own stuff, yeah. so I guess maybe that's yeah. how we know. In fact, uh, Dan Kaufman, who... He's like the director of innovation there, and he was speaking at. He spoke at Structure last year, and he was mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go watch that video, I think you'll, you'll love it. But he, he was he was interviewed in this piece, and he he didn't invent Memex, but he you know helped helped with it definitely. And he said like they don't do anything, hardly anything for the NSA because it does all its own stuff. I think. Wow, so. that, you know, he was great. You know, in fact, I'll link to that to the podcast post that that video. All right, but anyway, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, just so you know, I mean, just like the, the indexing power. And then it's tied to some other stuff we've written about, some research projects around machine learning and and looking at these posts to right. various places of the web and getting image data and language data and like just this kind of whole, you know. So I'm going to read your story and skip sixty minutes. yeah i tried to embed a video but it didn't work so yeah no they don't like it i don't think when you do that (laughs) and now how about our guests (laughs) uh so our guests this week are jeremy howard and anna gershik of analytic which is a deep learning startup that's using that's analyzing uh medical images so trying to diagnose diseases based on medical images and jeremy if you're in the data science space used to be the I think he was the chief president and chief scientist at Kaggle, the which is a, the online cool. yeah. like, data science competition platform, predictive yes. algorithm platform. So anyhow, he's a, Jeremy's a really interesting guy, and Anna's a very interesting woman, and here Anna will be speaking at Structure Data next month. And, and here <laughs> without we go. further ado, <laughs> okay. When your CIO requests continuous delivery on a hybrid cloud, it's time to call the consultants at Momentum SI. Experts in DevOps, resilient architectures, and scale-out cloud, Momentum consultants can help you establish a self-service infrastructure that bridges the gap between the development and operations teams. Momentum SI ensures that you have the expertise you need to get your projects done right. For consulting services, visit www.momentumsi.com. Thanks for supporting The Structure Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we're here with um, Anna Gershik and Jeremy Howard from Analytic, um, a deep learning company. And um, Jeremy used to be at, I always, is it Kaggle or Kaggle? 
Cackle, thank you thank for Thank you. I mean, I remember I talked to your colleague over there once, and I think I called it the wrong thing, and it was not a... Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, it was weird. Coming to America, every, it was always Kaggle, and I was like, it's it's gaggle, it's haggle, but Americans always say Kaggle. I know, we're just I, weird. I don't follow. <laughs> I get, I yes, get that's, call, that's I'm true. from Wisconsin. I get called out for my long A's all the time. Yeah, like, that's, a, that's kind of the Chicago, Wisconsin thing. <laughs> so, yeah. so can I just kick this off with a really elementary question, and then I'll let Derek go crazy with the technical stuff. So when I hear deep learning, I get confused often with machine learning, and I, I equate the two. I don't think that's correct. Uh, that's my first and probably only question. Can you guys explain the difference? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're jumping right into the technical details. Um, <laughs> I think of deep learning as a type of machine learning. I don't know what Jeremy would say, um, but it's definitely a, a different class of machine learning algorithm than you know, the more common, like, regression type thing. Um, you know, I always like to, I always like to, I always like to, to think of machine learning as being one of the two ways in which you can get a computer to do stuff. You can either tell it the steps necessary to do the thing you want to do, or you can tell it what you want and have it figure out the steps to get there. Wow. So the former of those would be programming and the latter would be machine learning. And so as Anna said, deep learning is one way to have the computer figure out for itself the steps necessary to do what you want it to do. Got it. All right. And yeah, I mean, I think and we can get more into that a little later. But um, I, I, I want to start too, you know, with, with talking about and we're talking about you know just so the next question after <laughs> after what is deep learning versus machine learning I guess I mean what I mean can you give the give the listeners just a quick you know, the background on on analytic I mean we've covered it before but you know for people who are unfamiliar what does analytic do our goal is to support clinical decision making um, by giving doctors the to the right tools that they need to access vast stores of medical data um, and the analogy I like to think of is how search engines transformed how we use information today. Um, well, we want to do that for doctors. Um, and we're starting with medical images. So this is perhaps the most underutilized type of medical data in terms of machine learning, at least. So by medical images, I mean x-rays, MRIs, um, CTs, even, even pathology slides. All right. And, and that's because, do you mean, in terms of deep learning, right? I mean, that, that kind of um, Im focus on images and computer vision. That's that's kind of I mean low hanging fruit, so to speak, right in the deep learning space because there's been so much effort and so much re so many resources put into that exact thing by Google and Facebook and and that type of company, right? So I mean, is that kind of the rationale behind getting in with with images right away? Um, yeah, that's certainly part of it. I mean, I think deep learning has you know gone. Um, has shown the most promise initially with computer vision, and now it's moving into other areas. Um, another part of it is just that, you know, um, machine learning on EMR-type medical data, the electronic medical record, is, um, it's a pretty, there's a lot of companies in that space. Um, All right. All right. So, so, I, mean, you, I, remember, I remember what it was like, you know, to, to, to Anna's point about search engines. Do you remember what it was like to use search engines before, <laughs> They discovered machine learning back in the days of AltaVista and stuff. It was just a rules-based search engine, and you would search for something, and you'd either get nothing at all, or you'd get a million things in no particular order. <laughs> neither and which, then neither Google came along, and 
Yeah, and then Google came along and applied a, a, a thoughtful machine learning algorithm to the sorting process, and suddenly Google started giving you what you actually wanted. So imagine, imagine if a doctor had access to the same thing in terms of generating insight from medical data. All right, so, so, so one of the things, I'm curious, because one of the things I hear, well, two things you hear, actually, which seem to be at odds here, Jeremy, or not, and I don't know, so maybe you can walk us through this, but... You know, the one thing you hear about deep learning a lot is you need a lot of data to do this. Like, you know, Andrew Wang was talking about whatever. We had to get 50,000 images of mugs to train a system or, you know, Google famously has a lot. And the other thing you hear is there isn't a lot of maybe of medical data or usable public, publicly available, let's say, medical image data or stuff like that. So, I mean, how do you those how do those come at those two things? Um, how, how do you address, I guess? the? Mm -hmm. Did you say there isn't a lot of medical data? I, I said there isn't. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right that deep learning is known for needing a lot of data, but I mean, it's actually that deep learning gets better and better with um, more medical data, with more data. Um, so that's, right. that's the motivation to add more data. Um, and in terms of medical data, I mean, it's not like it's floating around just ready to grab, but I mean, actually, like if you were to go get an MRI of your knee, you know, it's used to diagnose your knee if you have a knee injury, but that data is just kind of locked away and it's just sitting there and it's not really utilized again. And that's that's actually valuable for a machine learning algorithm or you know, deep learning algorithm. All right. Does it does it make a difference too? I mean, I, I just saw Greg Carrado from Google at a, at a conference a couple weeks ago and he was like, you know, if you don't have a mountain of data, get one. But does, <laughs> but does part of this have to do with the fact that also, I mean, this is my take on it at least, and maybe I heard it from Jeremy. So that's where I was going. But, <laughs> but like, I, I'll, I'll give credit where credit's due, but like where... I mean, also because with a medical image, you're looking at such a, a focused area. Like, I mean, yeah. you could, you're yeah, looking exactly. at exactly. Okay. You know, the reason that Andrew needs 50,000 mugs is because he has so many different kinds of, you know, Andrew has a lot of mugs. Um, some of them with, with GigaOM logos on them and some of them with no handles and mm -hmm. some of them in dark and some of them in light and some of them turned around upside down. Um, when Anna and I look at a, a lung CT, it's, it's from the same angle, it's the same rough intensity, it's the same rough crop. Um, but I, I would actually go further than Anna even and say, it, whilst it's true that more data can often be better, um, I think this is stopping people from even trying to use deep learning inappropriately. So there's a Kaggle competition which, I don't know, maybe it's just finished or maybe it's soon to finish on uh, facial key point recognition. So it's basically trying to say, hey, here's a face, where are the eyes, where's the nose, where's the mouth? They have, I think, 7,000 images. Um, and the, the top algorithms in that are nearly perfectly accurate. Um, so I don't, I don't think people should be put off trying to use deep learning just because they don't have a lot of data. Sometimes, sometimes I also almost feel like these companies like Baidu and Google kind of like to express this meme of you need lots and lots of data. Because, because they have lots of data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I don't think that's necessarily borne out empirically. I think right. it's more what Anna said, which is, you know, generally as you get more data, you can get better results. Right, it justifies the supercomputer. <laughs> I do <laughs> build. Do yeah, that's the, the D wave <laughs> in their basement. So, all right. So, so I wanted to ask you too, Anna, um, because, I mean, I, I looked at your bio and I see you have a background in, in neuroscience and one of the big, you know, I, I, I would say misconceptions or mis, 
characterizations, I guess, of deep learning is, and this maybe was to Barb's question earlier, like, what is it? Is that it's based on the brain somehow? And you hear a lot of pushback on that. I wonder if you can just, you know, as a, as a neuroscientist, if you could mm-hmm. give, a, give your take on deep learning and why <laughs> it is and what it is in comparison. I mean, it's true. Deep learning was inspired by how the human brain works, but it's definitely very different. Um, it at some level, it's trying to do the same thing as the human brain, which is to create um, deeper and deeper abstractions. So at the first level of neurons is sensitive to very simple visual features like edges, and that's actually the first level of our visual neuro, uh, visual um, system in our brain is also sensitive to edges. Um, and then later in level later levels become more abstract, like faces, for example, or objects. Um, and that's actually what our brain is trying to do. I mean, that said, our brain is um, has a, many different types of neurons. Uh, everywhere we look in the brain, we see diversity and deep. You know, these artificial networks. Um, every node is trying to basically do the same thing. Um, so there, there's a long ways to go before this is actually a brain, and they're, they're pretty different. Um, they're also currently focused usually on just solving one very specific task. Um, with a very clear objective, like face recognition or something like that. Um, whereas, you know, the human brain is very flexible, it navigates um, a very dynamic, changing world. All right, so do you cringe when you hear the brain analogy? Or is it useful um, to some people? You say, like, oh, I, I guess that's useful. I mean, it's somewhat useful, but it should be very clear that they're different. <laughs> <laughs> Does it feed but, it? Oh, go ahead. I mean, I, so part of my background in um, neuroscience was trying to understand the algorithms the brain uses and then the kind of flip side of that in computer vision is trying to get inspiration from biological visual systems and I always found that um, you could from a computer vision standpoint you can learn so much by looking at the brain that you know why not Um, so I I still feel a useful approach all right, but I mean, I feel I feel like a lot of this cringing that I've heard comes from people that actually aren't neuroscientists. Because I I know at Analytic, we talk to Anna a lot about her research, and it's fantastically useful. And we keep finding more and more relationships between her research and the state of the art in deep learning. But I think it's it's kind of fashionable for people to say how deep learning is just math and you know these people who say it brain like uh, are crazy but I mean the, the, the truth is as Anna said it, it it's absolutely is inspired by the brain it's a massive simplification but we keep on finding more and more inspirations right. for example um, Anna maybe you can talk about this a little bit but Anna had some amazing research where she discovered that the human brain the, the vision system has actually somehow customized itself to be particularly effective at understanding the way the world looks. And at Enlick, we're now trying to do exactly the same thing, but create a new kind of vision system that's customized for what the inside of the human body looks like, so that we have something that's customized for understanding medical images in the same way that the human uh, vision system seems customized for understanding the what the natural world looks like. Hmm. So yeah, so can you can you talk about that? On I mean, and Jeremy said you know we should ask about your background, and you have a fascinating background. So maybe the research is part of it, or maybe not. But feel free to elaborate. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, so what he's he's referring to, I think, is um, some research I did at NYU um, during my postdoc, um, which we are, you know, we are interested in kind of the statistic, the statistics of the world around us, the visual world around us, and what that means um, is basically the patterns in the visual world around us. So if you were to take a bunch of photos of the world um, and run some statistics on them, you know, you'll you'll find some patterns. Um, things like um, more horizontals and verticals. And you might think that's because we live in cities, but actually you find that in nature as well, um, just because of gravity and because of um, perspective. Um, and then we look inside the brain and we see, gee, wow, there's all these neurons that are sensitive to edges, um, and there's more of them that are sensitive to horizontals and verticals. Um, and then we measured the brain, and we said um, we measured behavior, kind of the resp the behavioral response in a type of psychology experiment. Um, and we see, do people are are biased to perceive things as more horizontal or more vertical than they actually are? Um, and you know, this this was some of my inspiration to go into this area of biologically inspired um, computer vision algorithms, um, or the flip side. Um, what are the algorithms that the brain uses to um, see, perceive? All right. I mean, is is that why, you know, is that why computer vision was such a? I think Jeremy may have dropped off, so you're gonna have to answer this. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Um, is is that why computer vision you think was such an early um, use case for deep learning? Because you know, it's it's, it's such a natural, I guess. Um, you know, connection to, to kind of, to the brain, or is it because you know, that's what Google or whomever had, <laughs> some of the researchers had a need right. for or were interested yeah. in. You know, that's a really great question. I, um, it might be a combination of the two. All right. Um, you know, definitely, um, computer vision research is very advanced compared to maybe other types of. Um, research in other perceptual domains. So there's a, there's a lot of energy going into it. I mean, it, it's the same in a neuroscience department at a university. The, the reason that people focus on vision is because um, a third of our cortex is devoted to vision. Um, it's a major chunk of our yeah. brain. So a lot of energy goes into understanding vision. And it's also something that's kind of easy to easier for us to think about because we can, we can see it. <laughs> All right. Do, do, you think, do, do, you, do you think that the, I mean, you know, we were talking about the cringing when people talk about the brain and analogy. Do you think that's in part because, you know, we're, now there's this big push in this kind of, I don't say fear mongering might be a little strong, but about, <laughs> you know, this future, you know, AI and danger. Taking you know, over. And yeah, this existential threat of artificial intelligence. Like, uh -huh. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, that seems to be when people say inspired by the brain, they immediately go to like human <laughs> intelligence, which is, you know, not really. Maybe that's the where the yeah. Is. I mean, maybe they should say inspired by biology <laughs> <laughs> um, instead of inspired by the brain. I mean, we don't actually use the term AI very much at Analytic. Um, we're we're just pretty excited about you know. There's like four billion people in the world without access to modern medical diagnostics, um, so we're pretty excited to create tools to help them. Um, and yes, like deep learning is kind of amazing and very flexible compared to other generations of algorithms, but it's it's not like the intelligent systems I was 
studying when I studied the brain at all. Well, so I guess, I mean, I just wanted to ask, you know, the obviously vision and medical scans and I mean, there's the whole end game here that people in underserved areas can be scanned and <laughs> radiologists won't have to read them or, you know, maybe you can just talk about the practical application a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, do you want to do it? Yeah, sure. So um, the a big part of the inspiration for Enlivic was what Anna mentioned. It's these four billion people that don't have access to modern medical diagnostics. Um, there was an interesting uh, analysis by the World Economic Forum where they calculated it will take 300 years to train enough medical experts to meet the needs of the developing world. Wow. Um, so it's interesting. We, we, we we get very different feedback to what we're doing from um, physicians versus lay people. Lay people tend to come up to us and say, oh my goodness, the medical world is going to be so defensive and against what you're doing because you're going to put them out of jobs. And we get the opposite reaction from physicians and radiologists. We get very, very positive reactions saying, oh, thank God, you know, we, we went into this business to try and help patients and there isn't enough time and there isn't enough people and I'm so glad that there are people with this kind of expertise getting into this field to give us the tools to help us do our job better. Um, so we have about one twentieth of the number of medical experts that, that we need um, worldwide. Uh, so by hopefully providing the kinds of tools which Anna talked about that potentially could learn from tens of millions of previous cases and use deep learning to to really extract the essence of those. Our goal is that a community health worker in rural India could have much of the same uh, capabilities to generate insight from medical data as uh, Mayo Clinic's top experts mm -hmm. could. Um, and that's really our goal is to make everybody be the the best that they can be by harnessing this technology you know a lot like google does with with giving people access to the world's information to help them make other kinds of decisions yeah so it's not i mean it's just i mean it's the same thing that we talked that i think has been talked about kind of to death with watson ibm's watson is something great <laughs> but it's not replacing we're not talking about replacing a doctor i mean in the case of analytic we're essentially saying right i mean listen you have an image I mean, now, Someone's you know, whatever, read it. someone has to read yeah. it, right? and if a Watson's, computer can do that in a exactly. second. Exactly. Watson's interesting because Watson has almost the exact opposite point of view of the way to do this as us, but they're very kindred spirits in terms of their goal. So Watson focuses on reading um, interpreted, condensed human knowledge. It, you know, Watson's good at reading things like academic papers or case studies. And then they, they surface that as this interesting kind of connected graph of genes and diagnoses and so forth. Our view is that the right kind of medical data to use is, is the actual raw patient data, the actual MRI scan, the actual lab test, the actual pathology slide. Um, and our view is that this is where machine learning is the most effective. Um, in the end, they are both attempting to provide a set of tools that physicians and nurses and community uh, health workers can use to create better patient outcomes more quickly. So from that point of view, uh, we have very similar goals. 
Uh, yeah, like diagnosis might not be the isn't the end goal, right? For it's like treating. So if you can yeah, focus exactly. your effort there, you can. exactly. So with what we tend to think is that in the end, in medicine, you know, you've got four steps. You've got gather some data about the patient, figure out what's wrong with them, figure out how to make them better, and then do that thing. Now, steps two and three of that four-step process are entirely data analysis steps. Figuring out what's wrong with you and how you make to be make you better are data analysis steps. And so in the end, if we can bring to bear 50 million patients' worth of data to make those steps better, I think it's going to be um, a huge impact on, on the health and longevity of the world. All right, cool. And so, I mean, I think, I think we're coming up in time. Just one more question for Anna. To close then, but I mean, I mean, can I ask? I mean, when you when you got into neuroscience, I guess whenever, you know, whenever you started down that career path, like, I mean, did you envision, you know, someday you would be working on on computer vision, I guess, and then this sort of field, or I mean, how is how how have you watched? Or are you, I guess, what what's your take on the evolution of this, and I guess your trajectory <laughs> to getting there? I mean, my personal trajectory has always been around visual imagery, so you know, I've done. Um, computer vision, computer graphics, human vision, um, dabbled in more artistic endeavors, um, and, you know, also been very interested in the perception of uh, visual imagery, so human perception, machine perception, looking at how radiologists perceive an MRI scan, um, like, for me, this is all kind of related um, mm -hmm. and tied together with an algorithmic approach, um, so... To me, this just kind of fits perfectly along with my career trajectory. Um, I, I should say, yeah. when Anna says dabbled in, she, she actually means <laughs> that she produced the award-winning interactive music experiences of Philip Glass and Bjork and Beck. Which oh, I my goodness. <laughs> That's quite a dabble. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I wish I could dabble like that. Um, yeah, musical data visualization um, is a kind of passion of mine on the side. <laughs> Right, yeah, I dabble in guitar, and it's horrible. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a little more than that. All right. All right. Well, great. Listen, uh, th thank you both for coming on. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for sitting much. in with us today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And Anna, we'll see you in a couple of weeks in New York, I guess. That's right. I'm excited. Me too. Bye. Thanks, guys.